Previously on Wages of Zen. Right, well, hopefully that's everyone up to speed. So welcome and thanks for joining me for episode 7 of Wages of Zen. Apologies for my nasal tone, I've just had a lateral flow and PCR COVID test back to back. And I had a nurse that made the Marquis de Sade look like a Blue Peter presenter. Anyway, I hope you've had a good week. This week, I've mostly been eating malt loaf and walking the dogs. Oh yeah, and I've shaved my big winter beard off, so now I look like a love child of the Bee Gees and a tennis ball. But hey-ho, let's get straight to business. Now anyone who knows me knows I'm a Windows man. Not the operating software, the glass-filled gaps in walls kind of windows. I don't mind doors, although I don't entirely trust them. And as for the loft hatch, well, I can't stand that chipboard flap of unrealised misery. I believe that I've alluded previously to my love of staring out the window. This practice began as a young child in school, where, having realised rapidly that I'd basically been sent to a gulag for tiny people in blazers, I understandably developed a rabid fascination for whatever was going on outside the classroom. I'd sit and surreptitiously peer into the middle distance, drifting into a realm of infinite possibility and wonder. While next to me, Marcus Nematode chewed his pencil and waded through algebra, and Daniel Dixon at the desk behind me mindlessly kicked the back of my chair, biding his time until he could find me later, remove my shoes and put them in the school fish tank. Anyway, suffice to say that I regularly find myself with my nose pressed up against the pane, just watching. Sometimes mindfully and at other times in more of a daydream state. When I looked out today, I saw my three closest neighbours all washing their cars. I've noticed that they do this not only with a disturbing frequency, but also with an equally troubling obsessive attention to detail. A bucket, sponge and old rag are not enough for these guys. They're professionals. And as such, are trapped in a perpetual cycle of waxing and buffing and waxing and buffing and waxing. Employing finer and finer grade chamois leathers and brushes until their vehicles gleam, diffusing the sunlight like a freshly oiled mermaid's bottom. I presume this hive of activity is an equal and opposite reaction to the restrictions upon our natural movements imposed upon us by Covid and our glorious leader Bojo. We've been in and out of lockdown in the UK for the last year or so, and quite frankly I think everyone has had enough. Even I, a classical introvert, whose life up until the emergence of coronavirus had frequently undergone long periods of self-imposed quarantine, even I am bored of it. At the peak of lockdown, it felt as if a trip to the shops was a forbidden mission. We'd shuffle down the road, looking over our shoulders and trying not to bring, in, bring attention to ourselves, in case the busies rocked up and demanded to see our papers. If we made it to the shops, we'd cover our faces and guiltily wander up and down the aisles, dropping cans of tinned ravioli into our baskets. Or 48 rolls of toilet tissue, if you were a cretin. For whatever reason, the British don't suffer restrictions lightly. We're not a compliant race, it would seem. The removal of our right to get together for a gigantic piss-up and a scrap, in particular, did not go down well. And alongside the restrictions on domestic and international travel, it took a while for us to get the picture. 
I think somewhere deep down in the core of our souls, we Brits understood the dangers of coronavirus and the potential tragic loss of life that would occur if this disease were allowed to run unchecked through our society. That's just as long as it didn't clash with our nephew's 21st birthday party or the two weeks holiday in the Costa Blanca that we've had booked for ages. But perhaps a glimmer of light is at the end of the tunnel. There's a plan to end lockdown and talk of vaccination passports and travel corridors again. So let's hope that there's a chance we can spend a slice of summer somewhere other than in our homes, watching reruns of The Ghost Whisperer and pretending to fire burning arrows at your housemates from the turret of the castle you've made from bog rolls and bags of macaroni. Let me say here that some serious gratitude is due to everyone involved in the creation, development and rollout of the vaccines. It is a truly astonishing and inspirational example of global human collaboration and agency. One that hopefully will reduce the numbers of deaths and need for hospitalizations, but will also provide us with the chance to return to a semblance of social normality. Because the other day a strange sensation washed over me. And it wasn't the familiar twang of deja vu of watching the Gilmore Girls and choking down mac and cheese for breakfast. It appeared to be related to the current prohibition of international travel. My wife and I are by no means fantastically well travelled, but we did enjoy the odd breakaway in Europe or sometimes further afield. Now, before you throw your toys out of the pram, yes, obviously there are and have been some options to explore the undeniable beauty of this country. However, there is something special about getting on a plane and flying to a new experience of, of different cultures, people, histories, cuisines, etc. And I wouldn't be a true Brit if I didn't mention the opportunity to exchange the dismal weather here for somewhere that sees the sun more than four times a year. I'm also aware that air travel is phenomenally bad for the planet and my carbon footprint. Ethically speaking, this is a bind. Of course, I wish to be mindful of our ecology and our role in ideally causing as little damage as possible to our planet. Yet I can't help but notice that I'm also alive at a time of relatively inexpensive global travel and that the odds of me being born and raised in this era and environment are so slight that I tend to think it might also be a little bit ignorant not to take advantage of this convenience, within reason of course. The areas of outstanding natural beauty in this country are breathtaking. The highlands, the valleys, the lakes, the peak district, the beaches and coastal paths and the Romney marshes are all undoubtedly standout domestic travel experiences. But and I'm sorry to be a bummer here, staycation fans. The problem I have is as follows. So there you are, walking the peaks or cycling on the marshes, as happy as a mud-splattered bandicoot, when you turn a corner and there they are, Morris and Marjorie from, well, from anywhere in the UK. Morris and Marjorie, they're a nice and friendly couple. He likes cheese and polishing his Mercedes, and she likes the archers and her collection of diamond jubilee egg cosies. They're not bad people. They haven't killed anyone and they're probably not going to. Although Morris gives me evils when I say I don't like Wensleydale. They're a couple of amiable old dears full of innocuous stories about their families and their lives and, and instantly I hate them. It's actually not them though, it's me. Call me old fashioned. I just don't want to meet people on a holiday that remind me of me. People who speak the same language, have similar cultural experiences, who appear dull and mediocre, again, much like me. Now, 
I know the way out of this quandary, and surprisingly, it doesn't involve a length of rope, a jerry can of diesel and a bag of twiglets. Instead of judging these people, I should open up to them. I should be interested in their histories and hobbies. I should sit down with them, buy them a drink and shoot the breeze, and listen keenly to that anecdote about the time that Marjorie got her foot stuck in a chamber pot on the way round Hampton Court Palace. I know I shouldn't be so cynical, so dismissive of a life experience, essentially exactly the same as mine. However, it appears I'm flawed. Sadly, I'm all too aware that I'm one example of one species out of millions, floating on a pebble in a savage and merciless universe. I'm here, apparently for no reason at all, but I'm here and conscious for what appears to be a finite period of time. So you'll forgive me, and I'll forgive you, for allowing a little self-centeredness to creep in. I feel, although it's not really the case, that I just don't have time to entertain Morris and Marjorie's drivel about how delicious that scone was that they had at Battersea Power Station. In moments like these, I'm aware that I'm caught in the realm of subjectivity, that I'm placing one experience over another and rating them unconsciously. And that is, from an Eastern philosophical perspective, absolutely nonsensical. In fact, Buddhism suggests that there is no self to be centred on, so how could it be creeping anywhere? And yet, this still appears to be a very real problem for me. As mentioned previously, I'm a textbook introvert, and clearly most of the issue here is down to my introversion and social anxiety. I consider these conditions to be a psychological trait and a disorder, respectively, and I suspect that they're extremely deeply rooted in the psyche. So far, I've yet to feel any significant change in these characteristics due to my meditation practice, but I'll keep you posted if all of a sudden I decide to join the chorus line at the Moulin Rouge. But that seems a long way off, as any interaction with people, particularly strangers, can be an exhausting experience. Thankfully, I'm not on my own, either in the sense that I know that there are many other introverts out there, eyes twitching nervously and hunched backs, anxiously shuffling in the queue at Waterstones, but also because somehow I've convinced an extrovert to be my partner. In a general sense, I've noticed that introverts pair up with extroverts. This is practical, I suppose, in terms of psychological balance. I imagine that two introverts in a relationship are destined to eventually forget about one another, as they both sit in silence, deep in thought and slowly strangling themselves in an ever-tightening ever net of worry about everything they would like to say or do, or everything they've ever said or done, or should or would or could have said or done, or thought or should have thought or could or would or might have thought. Anyway, and eventually they both die of starvation, covered in cobwebs and melancholy. Whereas the extrovert couple's destiny is a different matter. Their life is a constant carousel of parties and coffee mornings, PowerPoint presentations and loud outdoor sex. They talk all the time, are heavily opinionated, shouting over one another to get their points across. They're energised by large groups of people and can be found gathered in open spaces, being disagreeable, laughing a bit too much and high-fiving one another. At least initially, the extrovert couple's relationship appears strong because they're so similar, so fun and outgoing, but eventually their persistent need for and interest in the other, combined with the inability to contemplate their inner life, means that sadly they too will gradually orbit apart, after inevitably having strings of affairs 
and ultimately dying alone in a chair in a care home, covered in cobwebs and shame. I suspect that these opposing personality types get together to restore the natural equilibrium. One accompanies the other to social events, otherwise they would never go outside, and the other undergoes a gradual realisation that they don't have to say everything that comes into their head. My wife, as stated previously, is an extrovert type and seemingly doesn't suffer from any social anxieties. She'll happily go and join a table of strangers and just talk to them. I'll also join the table because I feel I have to as a dutiful partner. The significant difference being that while she's clinking glasses and chatting, on the inside I'm screaming, what the bloody hell have you done this for? They're going to kill us and make ashtrays from our kneecaps! Well, I'm, uh, I'm sorry you had to hear that. The Buddhist way never suggests that you believe anything as gospel. Its precepts are not injunctions. They're more like opportunities to experiment with your conscious experience. So in this vein, I often attempt to attentively approach social situations. The idea being that once they're seen in the light of non-judgmental attention, I might discover that they're not actually as terrifying as I believe them to be. This method has helped me to occasionally avoid the odd calamitous post-conversation meltdown when dealing with the Morrises and Marjories of this world. The practice of simply watching your inner nitpicker burst into action and then observing those picked nits dissolving into the ether is undeniably useful, particularly in the event that you have said or done something cataclysmically awkward or embarrassing. For example, when I perhaps rather bluntly informed Morris that his favourite fruity Wensleydale was made by harvesting knob cheese from gibbons that have been trained to hump Christmas cakes. In the ensuing silence after this comment, my mind was quickly filled with the traditional maelstrom of self-loathing and shameful thoughts. And being able to witness these and watch them pass was incredibly convenient and enabled me to regain my conversational footing and admit to Morris that I was wrong. Although unfortunately, under the stress of the moment, that only meant replacing gibbons with donkeys and Christmas cake with his wife. It's hardly surprising that a prerequisite of the path to enlightenment in many religious or spiritual traditions appears to be silence. This is because in silence, one can't be drawn into idle talk and therefore can focus robustly on the sound of Mickey's marbles dropping one by one and spiralling down a psychedelic chute into oblivion. Also, time spent in silence allows your perspective to slowly become detached from the symbolic systems of language and speech. To see them for what they are, rather than be fully invested in their sly deceit. A dip in the still waters of quiet encourages presence, whereas the return to conversation, however useful or enjoyable it may be, only gives rise to distraction and is likely without conscious effort to snowball, to gather momentum and accumulate over time into the vast ocean of conditions and ideas that we so frequently mistake for ourselves. But some people genuinely hate silence. Eggpan Stan can't go 10 minutes without discharging a scratchy, whistling, unintelligible racket from his rectangular hand companion. To these people, I suggest that they see this as an opportunity to reflect upon and practice the meaning and experience of silence. Start small though, 
Try being in silence for 10 minutes at first. Because anyone can manage that. Don't sign up straight away for a three-year silent retreat in Tibet. That's a serious commitment. And one, if you feel that that's genuinely your thing, that should be built up towards and completed under proper support and supervision. Don't worry, I see the glaring paradox. Here I am making a lot of noise about the importance of being quiet. All this paradox implies is that although silence is an essential part of Buddhist meditation and many other spiritual practices, it has to be balanced alongside the equally wonderful systems of communication that we've invented. In this sense, we need to keep two sets of books and be mindful of extreme behaviours and actions. I mean, I like a bit of peace and quiet as much as the next man, but a world without symbols and sounds is a world without art, without literature, poetry and music, and that almost doesn't bear imagining. However, if you like the sound of a world without music, literature or art, you sound like exactly the type of fool that would send me some money at patreon.com forward slash wages of zen. Donate as much as you like and I promise I'll only ever make content that barely qualifies as creative in any sense. Thank you. I feel a bit bad for Morris and Marge. They're good people after all. As much as they might annoy me, I'm grateful I occasionally meet them. They're a perfect opportunity to practice patience, empathy, compassion and attention. They may be unaware of the significance of silence, as demonstrated by Marge's 40-minute lecture on the history of the rich tea biscuit, but that's not their problem. I'd like to work towards being able to tolerate, even genuinely care about people like them. Some years ago, I would have dismissed them out of hand as idiots, and I rarely do that anymore. So I guess that counts as progress. But there's still a long way to go. Zen wisdom assures us of that. So I'll continue to sit every day and attend to the present moment as it arises, returning again and again to now, gradually removing layer after layer of conditions, revealing whatever was there before I started believing my ego was in charge. Last week, we looked at a baffling metaphor for meditation, and this week, I'm going to leave you with an absolute brain buster. So think about this. The Russians have a tradition of nesting dolls, Matroshka, I believe they're called. The shell of the doll comes apart at the waist, and inside there's a slightly smaller doll, which in turn splits at the waist, and contains a slightly smaller doll, and so on, until the smallest one at the centre is reached. Meditation can be imagined in a similar way, with the practice of mindfulness over time fracturing the surface of our egos and uncovering what lies beneath. And yet, what is found beneath is not smaller, as the practice of meditation only abolishes an illusion, something that we convince ourselves is there to begin with. And it's with the gradual or sudden destruction of this delusion that the practitioner experiences their conscious state as unified and not separated or divergent in any way from the experience of the cosmos. Meditation is not a practice of diminishing returns. It's like opening the doll and finding a larger one inside.